0: Hey, you're listening to the teaching portion of the Crossridge Women's Study in the Book of Revelation. This is part two from winter 2023. For more info about us and to access our resources, you can find us at crossridge.church forward wstudy. Hey, friends. Well, after our last gathering together, we managed to make it through chapters 18 and 19 in the book of Revelation. But chapter 20 was left hanging. And we just didn't have enough time. But before moving on to chapters 21 and 22, I felt like maybe we needed to spend a little time um, in chapter 20. We had brainstormed, you'll remember a whole list of questions and a few of those questions that pertain mostly to chapter 20 were left unanswered on the board. So I decided that what we were going to do is hop on the podcast and maybe have a bit of a unedited, unscripted, and perhaps slightly unfiltered uh, response to some of these questions by going through chapter 20 line by line together. Uh, What we will do is we will just bring up some of the questions that were left on our board as we meet them in the scriptures, and then I will give some of the traditional and historic responses to those questions some of the ways that people have tried to answer those questions in the past and then i'll also try to give you maybe my own personal response to it and the reason um, i'm going to do that not because i think my response is the best i don't but what i do have is um, history with you in this book we have gone through this whole book of revelation we are not answering questions on revelation 20 um, in isolation but we are responding to our own questions based on what, as a group and a community, we have already seen um, and learned and been shaped by as we've walked through chapters 1 to 19. So here we go. Um, As we start out, let me just pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. We are sinners and unable to see truth clearly apart from your Holy Spirit and for that we are grateful to you the living God the spirit that abides with us um, who brings us into all truth and who has been through 19 chapters already in Revelation faithfully revealing yourself to us. Lord would you continue to do that open our eyes to see and our ears to hear once again, what the Spirit has said and is saying to the churches. In your beautiful name, we ask this. Amen. There's one more thing we should discuss before we jump in uh, to chapter 20 and the scripture itself. When we come to passages like this that are notoriously difficult, that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world have disagreed on uh, for a long time, we need to proceed carefully and with humility and um, with graciousness to others. Um, There's a lot of danger that um, we could fall into Um, as we ask and then try to respond to some of these questions. And the first one is division. Um, Like I said, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, people who love the Lord and serve Him, disagree and have disagreed for quite a while on some of the, the ways that we should respond to or answer these questions. Um, But looking beyond that, I think it's really important for us to remember that while there is much uncertainty, so much is clear, and we agree on a lot more than what we disagree. Um, So we can focus on that, and we can hold others and their differing opinions with grace and humility, and uh, in doing that, we can model this idea of fellowship and unity in the body of Christ to A world that is not really uh, comfortable or or have experienced this idea of unity with people who we disagree with. Second, let's not miss the big picture. We've always been asking what is the most important thing? What does John want his reader to know? Uh, And sometimes we end up um, asking the wrong questions instead of um, focusing on what happens. We want to know further things, like how and when things happen. Um, We can also isolate details, we can focus on single verses or, or phrases, and then we can go on creating full theological platforms and doctrine, which can control how we see the rest of Scripture. Um, we've always said as we come to study that we should never interpret the rest of Scripture through the difficult passages we shouldn't build our interpretations based on what is difficult so let's continue to do that and be honest in our humble and humble in our study you know these two dangers they have something in common and the first thing is that what we agree on when it comes to being divisive, what we agree on in these passages is that Jesus returns, and he will defeat the enemy. Jesus Wins, And when it comes to the wrong questions, what happens in this chapter is that Jesus returns and wins. So as we proceed through chapter 20, let's keep that at the forefront, and then let's ask God to truly make us unified and humble, and let's, as we've said, hold these questions and responses loosely um, and in their place, um, rather than in the utmost place. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Let's stop there for a second because those first three words of this chapter already, without us even knowing, Um, stir in us a question. And that is about um, chronology. Uh, That that little phrase, then I saw, you know, I did a quick look through my Bible here. And I saw it without looking carefully, I noticed that we've already seen it 16 times, then I saw. And I did not count the times that John said, after this I saw, or then I looked. With that, there would be even more repetition. And what scholars do um, agree who read this book as we do uh, paying attention to its its context and its apocalyptic uh, genre and its symbolic nature and its imagery, is that when John says, then I saw, he is not talking about what happened next. He is simply telling us what he sees next or what he saw next in his vision. And this makes sense if you think about uh, dream language or vision language that we say is characteristic of apocalyptic literature. Uh, When you have a dream yourself, things probably don't go, go all linear and normal. Lots of dreams are very mixed up and strange. So When we see this, we do not have to worry that this means this angel comes down right after the rider on the white horse has come or after this feast. We're not thinking of a linear chronological view. We are just hearing the next part of John's vision. Okay, so this angel is holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. We had a question about the abyss on our board. So let's stop for a second. Have we seen the abyss before in this text, in Revelation? Uh, Because as we said, this book has been not linear. It has been cyclical. There has been something called recapitulation. We keep coming back to ideas we've seen before. Well, in chapter one, I would say that I saw uh, that Jesus holds the key to death and Hades. Um, So there is that key. Also in chapter nine, I remember that the angel comes down and actually opens the abyss and out of that abyss came what? Uh, Demonic locusts, remember? Um, And so that is our history so far with the abyss. Um, How about a a larger biblical understanding of the abyss? Well, actually, we can go all the way back to Genesis 1 for that. Um, God's spirit hovers over the abyss in Genesis 1. Um, Some scholars think of it as these dark, deep waters. Or we have talked about how this symbolizes the chaos waters that God hovers over and out of the chaos God brings order in creation and so through the Old Testament actually this is why these this idea of the sea and the deep dark waters comes to mean the place of of evil and chaos and even death Um, in Luke 8 31 we hear of the abyss in the New Testament in the Gospels where where Jesus heals uh, the demoniac, he casts out a demon, and then the demon, whose name is Legion, begs Jesus not to send him uh, back to the abyss. So the question that was asked in regards to the abyss is, is the abyss the same as the lake of fire? Well, I think it is pretty plain for us to respond to that and say, well, no, I, I don't think so. Partly because what we've just seen is is that this abyss seems to be this place where the evil and the demonic and the chaos um, originates or comes from or is held. Don't quote me too um, carefully on on that terminology, but it is this place of deep evil chaos. That's what it symbolizes to the original reader. Whereas the lake of fire is we're told here later in the chapter, the lake of fire is the second death. And fire has always stood for judgment in the book of Revelation. And as we get to the end, we're going to see that this sense of the lake of fire is something very with that holds finality. It symbolizes a final judgment as opposed to this abyss that seems to be where evil comes from. Okay, let's move on. Uh, We're in in verse two. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Okay, here's we have to, where we have to stop. Um, because this had the most questions on our board, which obviously, that, that makes sense. Um, and one of the questions is, what is, the, the main question, I guess, is what is the 1000 years? And my initial response to that is we don't know. Um, This is where a lot of people, a lot of wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ disagree. So we don't know. Um, But what do we know? So here's uh, our framework. We're going to go back to the text. Well, here's what it says. Uh, Let's keep reading for a bit. He threw him into the abyss, closed it and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. And after that, he must be released for a short time. If you keep reading through section four, um, to section section six it tells us a few more things about this 1000 years but let me just um, say four things that i see right now as i look at this text without reading further just yet we know that the 1000 years seems to be a period of time where satan is bound before this a short release okay so he's bound for a time then he's released Secondly, it seems to be a period of time where he cannot deceive the nations, okay? He's, there's a seal put on the abyss, which is interesting, um, because we've talked a lot about this idea of the seal before. Um, so he is sealed in this place where he cannot deceive the nations. We've seen the seal as um, a sense of protection before. So maybe we should keep um, that imagery flowing through here in chapter 20. Third, we see it's a period where there are people, this is what we see moving on to verse four, which we'll read in a second, a period where people are on thrones, they're given authority to judge, they came to life and they reigned with Christ. So the saints are reigning with Christ during this period. And then at the end of that section, verse six, we know that this, this 1000 years has something to do with the first resurrection. Okay. Okay. So we're going to do what we've always done. Where have we seen this elsewhere in Scripture? This idea of 1,000 years, a time period where Satan is bound or the saints reign, uh, something like that. Jesus reigns on earth. Where have we seen it before? Well, and here's what's so difficult about this. There is nowhere else in Scripture where we see this. The prophets don't talk about it. Jesus doesn't talk about it. There is no other mention outside of the three verses in the beginning of Revelation 20 that talks about this 1,000 year period or the millennium where Satan is bound, saints are reigning with Christ on earth here's why we need to proceed carefully this is said 3 times here it's talked about so briefly and nowhere else in scripture is it talked about and and maybe that's a for a good first response is that we should really consider how much we ought to be talking about it ourselves if john talks about this so little and the rest of the biblical writers talk about it not at all okay maybe we've put a little too much emphasis on it. Uh, one thing I will say is that we we certainly have seen uh, the number 1000 before. And we've been typically looking at numbers symbolically as we've studied. Now, we've never seen this number before. We have seen the number 10 in Revelation. And you can probably do the math quickly, carry the two and realize that, that 10 times 10 is is 1000. Okay, 10 being like a complete, a full, a large number, uh, times another 10, a large, full, uh, complete number. Uh, But there's other places actually where the number 1000 is used in Scripture. It's used a lot in the Psalms, you can probably finish these verses even without looking them up. Psalm 84 verse 10 better is one day in your courts, than 1000 elsewhere. Psalm 50 verse 10 says for every animal of the forest is mine declares the Lord I own the cattle on 1000 hills. Yeah. Psalm 105 verse 8 says he remembers his promise forever and his covenant for 1000 generations. So even just by going with those three places where the number 1000 is used we we see that this number seems to be symbolic for a great amount a great amount of cattle a great amount of time a a great amount of generations and and even though the number 1000 is not a very great number for us in 2023 the scientific age has put all kinds of big numbers out there for us to um, to identify and know about and even count to But for the ancient Near Eastern reader and the biblical author for John in this time when he's writing around uh, AD 90, this is a very great number for him. So let's think about it as uh, a large time period, okay? So the next question that flows out of that that we had on the board is, when is this 1,000 years? Or uh, another group phrased it as, where are we in the 1,000 years? So I think the real question behind this um, sort of flows out of this um, conversation about numbers and their, their symbolic nature. And that is this. Is this a literal time frame or a symbolic amount of time? Uh, Well, you're going to have to decide for yourself. For me, if I'm interpreting these uh, numbers symbolically, then I'm going to say that this time period is also a symbolic amount of time. If you see this as a literal time period, um, you're one of our brothers and sisters in Christ who who might hold the premillennial view, which is that this is a literal 1000 years after Jesus returns, uh, when the saints reign with him here on earth. Now that just opens up a whole bunch more questions, but that's not what we're here to talk about or, or to debate. Um, so far in this study, we have spent a lot of time interpreting numbers um, and periods of time symbolically and, and just really benefiting and learning from their their meaning as symbols and imagery. So for our purpose of responding to this right now, I'm Uh, I'm going to walk us through that interpretive framework, that this is a symbolic amount of time. And and once again, I think we've said it a few times, but we should just be careful of our inclination to want to see Revelation as this timeline, this forecast of the future, rather than this beautiful picture book of spiritual realities that we can't see with physical eyes. Because I think when we do that, we miss out on the value that Revelation had For the original reader, I've said this before, which also shows us what value it has for our own discipleship and formation today. But let's get back to that question. When is this 1000 years then? Uh, Perhaps we can ask when, in what, you know, amount of time, framework of time, symbolic measure of time is Satan bound? When is he bound? Is it at a certain time in history? Is it in at some time in the future? Well, let's consider that question with the whole of Revelation once again. What have we seen in Revelation um, so far? We've seen in chapter 12 and 13 that Satan has lost the war. That he has been thrown down out of heaven in judgment. And then here we've seen that he is bound for a time and released shortly, and we're going to see only to be immediately completely destroyed um, by the symbolism as he's thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, a larger sense of scripture, uh, I think, would tell us that Satan has suffered some measure of defeat by the person and, and the work of Jesus Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection. Colossians 2 verse 15 says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities that he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. There's this triumph over rulers and authorities. Um, Often that's used to talk about not just the the physical rulers and authorities, but the evil um, that's behind them, which certainly goes along with what we're seeing in Revelation, doesn't it? Mark 4, 27 is a really important passage, I think, to bring into this discussion of when is Satan bound? Because that is the, the passage where Jesus has been accused of driving out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus answers, how can Satan drive out Satan? If if Satan opposes himself, he is finished. He is destroyed. And Jesus says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder the house. So how can Jesus cast out demons on earth? Because there is a sense that he has bound the strong man. He has tied him up. He has bound Satan in some way. Later, when he's talking about his death and the kind of death he's going to die, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. There is a sense that Jesus's ministry on earth and his death and resurrection does uh, deliver some measure of defeat to Satan. And and maybe we can just say that just like we talk about the kingdom of God being this now and not yet kingdom, I think it's fair to say that Satan's defeat also falls into that. There is a now measure of his defeat, but there's also a not yet measure of his defeat. And I think we'd all agree with that. There is a sense that Satan has been thrown down from heaven. His judgment is already secured, though not yet fully realized. A lot of scholars respond to this by saying that Satan is bound in a sense right now, even um, just because the gospel is able to go forward. That the kingdom is going out to all the nations and to the ends of the earth, and that 's what it means that the nations are no longer deceived that that everyone has eyes to see um, the gospel, the truth of Jesus, everyone who hears um, can hear ha- can can see this truth of the gospel and and yet there is also the sense that that Satan is furious and he pursues we 've seen this in revelation and he prowls around like a roaring lion. First Peter says that he's looking for someone to devour. His goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, considering all this, this is why lots of scholars respond to this question about when is the 1000 years in that um, they say they believe that it happened beginning at the inaugurated kingdom. So it began when Jesus first came to earth, and it ends at his second coming that it is parallel time frame to the 42 months as we've talked about, or we've also labeled it sort of the church age. Um, So that is a response to that question that I think lines up with what we've seen here with the symbolic nature of the numbers. Okay, let's move on now to that verse number four. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Okay, this is where um, we had that question of, or or again, we see this 1000 years that what we see in the text is that the saints are reigning with Christ. Um, I think we shouldn't be surprised when we think about the whole context of Revelation. We've already seen elders on thrones. We've seen the people of God ruling, even wearing crowns in chapter 4, right? Um, the believers have been called a kingdom of priests to our God. We've talked about this before um, in chapter 1 and in chapter 5. There is this biblical sense that believers have been given by Jesus a kingdom purpose here on earth we are spreading his good news uh, to the nations we are ruling and bringing his kingdom good news to to everyone that we um, come in contact with the real problem I think or the question I guess not the problem the question that arises from this is this one the one of this first resurrection Um, And it comes out of that verse that I just read. Also, those um, who were beheaded or martyred, who had not worshipped the beast or taken his mark, they came to life and reigned with Christ for 1000 years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1000 years were completed. So the question that was left on the board was, is there one group who is resurrected first, like the martyrs? And then a companion question to that that I saw was, where do we go after we die if we weren't martyred? It seems like there's this one group of people who are given this first resurrection when we read it in our English Bible. Um, and, And my response to that, along with many very good scholars that I have read, is that I think the Greek sense of the text helps clear that up for us. Um, when you read it in the in the Greek, I think the sense that's given, and this is agreed upon by a lot of scholars, is that this could be three different groups of people listed. Um, those who have been beheaded because of their testimony and because of the Word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and those who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. So um, that list of three different kinds of people sort of encompasses all believers if you read that again, if that was your question. Um, but along with this, um, let's keep reading in in verse 5. It says, This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And um, so going back to this question when is this first resurrection what is the first resurrection it's interesting john never talks about a second resurrection and he talks about a second death but he never talks about a first death so way to go john just being clear as as usual in your apocalyptic writing right but let's think about the text okay has when have we talked about resurrection so far? Or have we in Revelation? Maybe we haven't. I I would say that we've seen it. I think that resurrection seems to happen to the two witnesses or the church in chapter 11. Remember, the spirit enters them after they've been killed by the beast, and they come to life. Okay, that's resurrection. Um, and where else have we seen, do we see this idea of resurrection in Scripture? Well, um, in the Gospels, when resurrection is used, the word resurrection, you know, I, I do know that most of the time it's talking about physical bodily resurrection, like um, the sense of it is is Jesus being raised from the dead or, or Lazarus being raised bodily from the dead. But I do think there's also a theme that is not as physical, that is resurrection sort of themed, um, but that is more spiritual. And we, we see it in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. But God made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2, 20, Paul says sort of the same thing. I have been crucified with Christ. It is, uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And then basically, if you read the entire chapter of Romans 6, I think Paul also says a lot about this idea of, of being dead to sin and raised to Christ, that there is this spiritual resurrection that happens when we come to faith. Um... Romans six says so. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to Christ. There's so much more from Romans six. I could just read you the whole chapter. Um, and Colossians three, one more from Paul: For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I can, we, we. It's undisputed here that Paul believes in this idea of there is this sort of spiritual from death to life that happens. We could say that's a resurrection. Um, lots of times when I see Paul saying something, I look and say, well, what about Peter, James, and John? We see John talking about it here. Well, Peter talks about it too. In First Peter, he says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So the whole of Scripture, I think, agrees that that we could see coming to faith or conversion as, as a resurrection. Could this be the first resurrection? Uh, Some people think it could be. Some people think this first resurrection simply is the bodily resurrection of believers um, as they pass from from death to life. Um, In some way, I think we could say all men will experience first death. I mean, we will experience first physical death. All men will die, right? But also in order to be among the believers, among the saints who reign, Um, we must also experience that first death to sin, that repentance, confession and repentance, where we turn from that, we die in our flesh, and we live by the Spirit of God. Um, and, And it says it here, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years, really the whichever way you look at it. Um, Whether the first resurrection is just conversion, or whether it is um, just when you die, you will be raised with Christ to eternal life. Both are good news. (laughs) All of it is good news. Uh, Let's keep going then. And let's read verses 7 to 10. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so in in these few chapters, Satan is released. He gathers nations from four corners of the the earth, and specifically this mention of Gog and Magog. and, And one of our questions was, what on earth is Gog and Magog? Well, To understand this, we really have to look in our cross-references. We have to go back to Ezekiel uh, 28 and chapter 38 and 39 to see that um, Gog was this chief prince of this land uh, called Magog. And Magog actually originates even further back in Genesis 10. Uh, Magog was the descendant of Japheth, and eventually Magog just refers to the entire land that his family settled Okay, well, now fast forward to Ezekiel and the prophets, and the prophets are using um, this idea of Gog and the land of Magog to symbolize all the evil nations that oppose God and his people. And what happens in Ezekiel? Well, God gathers them together, he brings them together, and guess what? Fire comes down and destroys them. And you know what else? They become a feast of flesh for the birds. Does this sound familiar yet? <laughs> it sounds a lot like what we just saw in chapter 19. And that is what John is conjuring up, this picture of God defeating, this final defeat of all of his enemies that come from far and wide, and, and they are finally um, defeated. Once again, we see here, like we've seen before, that the the enemies gather, they bring all their their um their members all their their warriors, and it says here that their number is like the sand of the sea. interestingly, where have you heard that before That's how the children of Abram were often um, described that they were going to be like sand of the sea. Um, just so many in number, and here God's enemies are also so many in number. However, what do we see? There is no battle. They assemble, and immediately the enemies are consumed by fire from heaven. This ultimate consuming judgment of God comes down, and there is a sense of finality here. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet, who we also know are thrown into the lake of fire. And it says they're tormented day and night forever and ever. So another question sometimes people have, we didn't have it on our board, is this idea of eternal suffering or eternal torment um, in relation to hell. We're not going to take a long time to discuss this, but but I do think if that is a question that comes up when you read this, um, I think once again, we just need to, to remember that uh, we have an inclination to ask a, a timeline and a how question that the text doesn't mean to pose. I think there's something actually really important to see here when it talks about the devil being thrown um, into the, the lake of fire and, and being tormented day and night forever and ever. Because I think there's an important contrast here, and that is the future of the dragon is contrasted with the future of the lamb. Think back in Revelation, how have we seen the future of the lamb been described? He will be worshipped day and night forever and ever. This is just the big black and white contrast between how it ends for the dragon and how it ends for the lamb. I think John writes this not to tell you what it's going to look like on the timeline in the future. I think John writes this to his original reader to ask, so who will you choose? Here's the outcome for both sides. Which side will you choose? Okay, that brings us to chapter 11 Oh, sorry, verses 11 to 15, the last um, few verses. Let's read them together. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. Let's just stop here for a second. Do you realize that this is, and you can go back and count, this is the seventh appearance of the throne room in Revelation the seventh time we are brought into the throne room and here this time it is all about the great white throne that is that is the center of the room and that is what's happening here at this moment Um, We also see this little phrase that we're not too surprised by, although it could seem clunky to you if you had just parachuted into this verse, but this idea that earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. We've seen um, mountains moving, right, and mountains fleeing before in Revelation and always came at this time of the final judgment. So uh, that is what's happening right here. Let's keep reading. I also saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire okay one of the questions that came out of this portion is uh will we actually be judged by our works and um i think it's really important for us to to know that this is this is a bigger question a question that christians have always and are always asking about the life of faith isn't it can you identify Um, The underlying question, are we saved by faith or by works? We know um, how the Bible answers that, don't we? It answers it, yes. (laughs) Yes, we are saved by faith. Yes, we are saved by works in some sense. And um, here's how Ephesians answered it. Ephesians says that we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves, so that no man can boast. But then, when we go look at James, what does what did we learn that James says? James says that faith without works is dead. It is no faith at all. So that's why I would tell you that the Bible's answer to that. Either or question is a resounding yes that there is some sort of tension there that we are saved by faith by faith in Jesus but also that our faith or our um our faith is proved genuine by our works and that is James's contribution to the conversation and like we said in James we we don't think it's necessarily um a conflict we don't think those two things are in conflict. So let's go back to this question from what we're reading here. Will we actually be judged by our works? I think we have that question because it says that the dead, the great and the small, everyone's standing before the throne, and these books are open, and the dead are judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Well, let's think about these books. We've seen them before in Scripture. Um, We've seen We've actually seen a few books, a few scrolls in Revelation, but we've seen books being opened in the throne room in the book of Daniel, in the Son of Man passage. It says the books are open where the deeds have been recorded. Nothing is hidden in these books, like everyone's deeds have all been been written down and it's like an accounting ledger in the ancient Near East they would do a census and they would in a book they'd write all the names of all the people whose names came out in the census and then beside them they would list what debt they owed in taxes and then as it was paid they would mark in that ledger who had paid their taxes and who had not and really in these books that are being opened in the presence of God in the presence of the Son of Man um on, on every single account, what is owed? The wages of sin is death. We are all sinners. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all owe a great death and the payment is death. Um, so the dead are judged. All of us are judged according to, um, according to works, according to... What it says in the accounting ledger our works are, are often works of sin, not always, but there is the presence of sin. And so we um, owe death. But what other book was opened? Another book is open. And what is this? This is the book of life. Specifically, we have read this before. This is the Lamb's book of life. And if your name is written in that book, you belong to the Lamb. And so instead of just all the books that account our sin and our deeds, there's another book that sort of trumps those other books. And if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, then what happens? What is said that your debt is paid by who? By the Lamb himself through his death on the cross. So that's one way of looking at it. Um, We should be judged according to our works, but our greatest work is just our faith in the lamb and, and having our name then written in his book. Another way you could look at it is to consider how has John been talking about this idea of the dead? Who are the dead? It says the dead are the ones that are being judged. And you know, already in this chapter, just a few verses before, we see that the dead are those who have not come to life, those who, those who have not been raised to life. Uh, so some people might look at it and say, okay, these are the unbelievers are being judged according to their works because that's all they have. Their name is not in the Lamb's Book of Life. Their debt has not and cannot be paid no matter what good deeds they have um, attempted to do. So that's a second way we might respond um, to that. Either way, the, what we do agree on, What the news is... Is very good that um, those whose name are written in the Lamb's Book of Life um, have eternal life they are blessed and those whose names are not found written in the Book of Life um, they experience the second death and that is really the bad news of the gospel isn't it they are thrown into the lake of fire those last few verses the sea gave up the dead that were in it death and Hades and death, everything is given over to final judgment. Everything is destroyed. Um, we see this in First Corinthians fifteen twenty six, when Paul says, "The last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death itself." That is how um, completely Jesus is renewing and purifying creation. That the the last enemy. F- he will destroy is death itself and we come to the end because we are about to step into chapter 21 where we see the end of death and all evil and and everything that is wrapped up in this Um, and i would say along with you i still have so many questions Uh, lots is still unclear to me i could spend a lot longer um you know, bringing up some of those questions and giving you my response and giving you other historic responses to it. Um, but instead, I just encourage you to press into the questions you still have uh, press into study, press into wrestling with them, press into asking God the hard questions that you have, and to fight for comprehension to lay hold of it, it is there for you. Um, the Spirit of God longs to speak to you through his word. Um, So do that. And yet, I'd also just encourage us all to, in faith, hold these difficult questions loosely um, in favor of clinging to what is abundantly clear, that Jesus will return and that he will defeat death itself and all sin and evil. Um, Secondly, like we started out saying, let's go forward in humility and bear with others, Um, our brothers and sisters who have different interpretations or who have come to different conclusions after good study and actually more study than what we have just done even here, do not lay aside unity for these issues. They are not primary. They are not pertaining to salvation. They are not the essence of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And finally, like I just said, let's focus on what is clear that he returns, that he will defeat sin and death. Um, and if you have put your trust in him as your king and savior, you need not even fear the future and what the future holds. Um, in fact, as we're going to see in the next two chapters, you should look longingly towards it. Um, because what we will see is unrivaled, unmatched beauty and glory. And it is ours in the future. Thanks be to God. Hey, thanks for studying along. And wherever you are, it's our prayer that as you seek to read and hear and keep this message of the book of Revelation, That you too will experience the blessing that comes from being among those who choose to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Grace and peace. We'll see you again soon.